Reveal is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. America's longest war is over. And now, 20 years after countless deaths and $2 trillion in spending, Afghanistan is back in the hands of the Taliban. Many people are remembering the fall of Saigon in 1975, but this week's rapid fall of Kabul has brought its own unforgettable images, now seared into our memories. Thousands of Afghans flooding into the Kabul airport, desperate to flee. Gut-wrenching scenes of crowds of people running alongside and clinging on to an American military plane as it gathered speed across the runway. And that video that went viral of bodies falling off the plane and plummeting through the air seconds after it took off. This is how it ended. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on America's homeland. But when President George W. Bush ordered the invasion of Afghanistan, where the Taliban had been harboring Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, he had a very different vision about the U.S. mission. America not only fights for our security, but we fight for the values we hold dear. We strongly reject the Taliban way. We strongly reject their brutality toward women and children. He promised the U.S. would defeat the Taliban and help rebuild a stable and peaceful country. American and our allies will do our part in the rebuilding of Afghanistan. We learned our lessons from the past. We will not leave until the mission is complete. Some Afghans took that promise to heart. Today, we're going to look at how that now broken promise is affecting people in Afghanistan, the U.S., and around the world. We begin with a young woman named Aisha. Okay, we start recording. She's in her mid-20s and lives in Kabul. Our producer, Najib Amini, has been talking to her over the last few months. Aisha? Hello. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu Aisha. You can hear me, right? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? We're not using Aisha's full name because of concerns that the Taliban could come after her. Aisha's family fled Kabul before she was born. They left when the Taliban rose to power in the mid-90s. But after the U.S. invasion, her family decided to come back. Peace will come. This was the concept of America coming here, that we will bring peace and we will remove Taliban. At the beginning, Aisha's family believed in the war and the hope that life in Afghanistan would change. Many times, many times I was a supporter of this idea that this war would bring peace. This is the process of peace. This is how peace will come, but not anymore. As the U.S. began its final withdrawal of troops and the Taliban seized one provincial capital after another, Aisha's life quickly changed. She's a school teacher, or at least she was until a few weeks ago. I decided that I need to give resignation from my job and stay home because the security is getting very bad now. And I told this news to my students. They got very sad, very, very sad. As the Taliban continued its march towards Kabul, she hunkered down at home, waiting for them to take over. 
A couple days before Kabul fell, Aisha stood on her small balcony and recorded the sounds of kids playing below. They're playing hide and seek, running after each other, hiding beside the bushes. There are about 15 kids in the small yard. Aisha gets lost in the moment. Do, don't, you catch me, you didn't catch me, this is not fair. <laughs> Cute people. The kids are playing regardless of the threats and the dangers that is coming towards them. I feel it's their last moment of them smiling or laughing. It's been almost 20 years since Aisha and her family moved back to Afghanistan. Her dad drove them from Pakistan, hoping to arrive in Kabul before nightfall. It was a little bit dusk. It was getting sundown, so my father was driving fast. On the way, I saw there was one plastic butterfly. It had a thread, and it was connected from the one part of the street to the other part of the street with a very small thread. And then I saw there was like a ball. And my father said, look, if you see such kind of thread in a butterfly in a ball, that is a hand grenade. At first, she was hopeful, especially with how the country was changing. We did have our country back. First, an update on Afghanistan, which has a new constitution today. We did have our lost home back. artistic part of Afghan culture that stretches back centuries. We did have our lands back. A larger crowd than usual gathered on the shores of the Sayat River north of Kabul one recent Friday. But we didn't have inner peace. It's been another violent week in Suicide Afghanistan. Bombing Revolts in, in the countryside. Executions and ambushes. Hit and run tactics. Ten years after 9-11, I remember going to school. And that's the day when my life changed. We are following a quickly developing story on the ground in Afghanistan this morning. Insurgents appear to have launched a coordinated attack in the heart of the city. I was studying in the class and we thought it's an earthquake. And one earthquake, okay, it's okay. It's just an earthquake. Second earthquake, I was like, okay, okay, second earthquake. But once the third earthquake happened, it was, it was shaking. And that was not a normal one, it had a voice. Eyewitnesses said they heard perhaps three what they supposed might be suicide bombs as insurgents apparently stormed. They told us that uh, some terrorist has took over just like three blocks away from us. They are aiming the U.S. Embassy, the hospital, and some other near areas. So the next blast happened. They were firing with rocket launchers, like RPGs. RPG, get down! Like, it literally felt like it passed up from the above of our school building. So that time, we started, you know, fall in the ground and we were so scared that what if these these people come and take over our school what would we do i was constantly thinking how to run away how to run away and uh, after some time the police force army black helmets guns they came inside and took 10 students out. And we started running. I, I started running and running and running. The shooting is all but over. No Americans have been killed or wounded. But the enemy sure made its presence felt in the Afghan capital today. We lost two or three students in this in incident. They were, they were cute girls. They were very young to lose their lives. And uh, everyone has this type of stories. And they have even worse than this. 
when I think of the Taliban, I always get curious about who are they, where do they belong from, what do they want, and, and if someone is supporting them. All these years of hard work, these billions of billions of dollars, these, these people, the American soldiers, the Afghan soldiers, the American citizens, the Afghan citizens losing their lives were just because to bring peace. It didn't do its promise. It didn't fulfill its promise that we will remove Taliban. The Taliban is on the march, overrunning a dozen provincial capitals in just a week. The Taliban are closing in on the capital. They are literally right on the doorstep of Kabul. So much happened in 24 hours. Every second was a news. Every single second. There was a rumor that would turn to a breaking news. The first thing that I heard was that the banks are getting closed. If anyone has any assets or money, they should take it out. And then my brother, he picked me up. He told me that Taliban are here from two sides. They are coming inside. So. He said, come, let's go. And I holded his hand and I ran with him. Panic, chaos and fear. Smoke rising over the US embassy. Chinook helicopters taking off. Afghanistan's capital and what was the last government stronghold. The statement of Taliban came over the social media and everywhere that they would not harm anyone. And that did give us a little bit of relief. But because of the experience that they have left over the other provinces, the women's, the children's, boys, their fear is always available in our hearts. And it started with everyone running towards the airport. running for their lives. Later on, I discovered that Taliban had started removing female women's pictures from the public. It showed how they will treat women. I packed my clothes to nowhere. I have no place to go. I just packed my clothes and I told my mom, Mom, if I die, give this to the beggars. If I go somewhere, then I will take them with me. <laughs> she told me, keep quiet, don't say such things. <laughs> but I packed my clothes. I kept myself busy. I know I will face them. I know. I know I will face them. It's facing your fears. And the only way that you can face your fear is to be brave. Braver than your fear. The meaning of war of US and Afghanistan. What does it mean to me? I don't know. I really don't know. It's a disappointment. If we knew this would happen after 20 years, we would never come. If we knew we would be back to the place that we had run away from, we would have never come back. It is just giving fake hopes. If we knew. Aisha has turned to writing poetry to help her cope with a lot of what she's experienced over these past two decades. Poetry is something special not only to her, but a lot of Afghans. We in Afghanistan, we really appreciate poetry a lot. It hits you hard. She wrote a poem she wanted to share with us. It's called, I Dare You. I Dare You. I dare you to live the life that I've lived. 
I dare you to sing after me the poem that I sing today. I dare you to hold your broken pieces of your heart and walk with me. Come live the life that I have lived. I dare you. I fear you. I fear you. I fear you that one day there will be no more me and all I will see is you. I fear you. Oh, I wish I could never see you, but I feel you. I feel you when I close my eyes. I hear the children. I feel them shouting. Mothers screaming, bullets firing, humans dying, men's bleeding. Oh, you're so terrifying. I hope, I hope that one day the plastic butterflies will turn into cotton for butterflies where I play. I hope my childhood playing with dispensed bullet could turn into dolls and flowers. The 20 years I saw no peace but fake promises every day. I dare you. I dare you today to live the life that I live. Aisha misses being a teacher. She wants to go to graduate school and get a master's. For now, she tells us she's trying to stay safe and hoping for a day when it's possible for her to follow her dreams. That story was produced by Reveal's Najib Amini. Since the start of the war, more than 47,000 Afghan civilians have been killed according to Brown University's Cost of War Project. When we come back, we talk to a journalist who is trying to get fellow Afghans out of the country. We know that we've lost Afghanistan and people are connected because we all have family there. And so the phone has been ringing off the hook. Messages keep coming, um, calling for help. I don't get much sleep these days. That's coming up next on Reveal. reveal comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash reveal. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash reveal. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. The other day, I got to sit down with one of our friends here at Reveal, reporter Friba Nawa. Her stories have taken us to places we'd have never gone otherwise. Last year, she brought us the story of two women journalists who were murdered in Istanbul. And before that, 
an intimate portrait of an Afghan woman fleeing a forced marriage. Lately, she's been glued to the events unfolding in the country where she was born. This is not just a story for me. I've covered Iran, I've covered Turkey, I've covered Germany, you know, and of course I covered Afghanistan, but this is personal. Fariba's family fled Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion in the early 80s when she was just a kid. When she grew up, she would cover the country as a journalist, from a distance in the 90s when it was ruled by the Taliban, and then on the ground after the U.S. invasion in the 2000s. In 2011, she published a book, Opium Nation, Child Brides, Drug Lords, and One Woman's Journey Through Afghanistan. These days, she's based in Istanbul, but has been visiting family in California, not far from the Reveal offices. So we were able to talk face-to-face. So, Friba, I understand you've been with family here in California. Uh, what have your days been like? Well, I'm from Little Kabul, which is Fremont, California. It's the largest community of Afghans in the United States. And so it's been a mourning process, I guess. We know that we've lost Afghanistan and people are connected because we all have family there. And so the phone has been ringing off the hook. Messages keep coming, um, calling for help. Uh, people I've worked with, relatives. Uh, it's I don't get much sleep these days. Yeah. And specifically, these are people calling you, trying to figure out ways out of Afghanistan? Exactly. Yeah. How do we get out? What's next? What's happening? Let me see. Um, I can play something. The, the first messages are all, how is everyone? And they name them one by one by one. I don't, mm-hmm. It's a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is someone who helped me write my book, helped me with the reveal story. She's a mother of three kids. And uh, she's saying, I really just want my daughters to go to school. Because when I was 13, I was married off. This was under the Taliban. And I, I didn't even know what marriage was. And I want my kids to um, have an education, especially my daughters. They're so desperate. She's suggesting that she come alone with her husband or just alone and leave her kids, if that's what it takes to protect her kids. She's saying, you know how much I love my kid as a mother. You know that if they're five minutes late from school, I put on my burqa and I go to the school That's how afraid I am of what's going to happen to them. But I would be willing to leave them alone. I'll go to America and then I'll sponsor them so that they'll have a future. That's what she's saying in that message. Yeah. That's a very, very risky plan. Yeah, I I didn't advise it. And I told her it would be possible, hopefully, to get her out with the family. Your family left Afghanistan 40 years ago. Can you compare the situation that Afghan refugees will face today to what your family faced? People were nice to us when we came to America. They thought of us as the good refugees. We were not the enemy. We were not the terrorists. They barely understood what we are. I joke about this. Um, When I was growing up in Fremont, California, that they thought an Afghan was either a breed of dogs or a blanket. (laughs) So there was a lot of ignorance, but I don't think there was the same type of discrimination and racism that we see today post-911, and that's what's different. Did you see this coming during the initial invasion 20 years ago? I mean... No. I supported the intervention. That's what it was called then. I saw it as a an opportunity for us Afghans. I had no rose-colored glasses about why the U.S. was going in there. I didn't believe that they were there to improve women's rights or that they were there to save Afghans. You know, all you have to do is read books on foreign policy and what the U.S. has done. That That's not why. But it was... I thought it was up to us Afghans to come together. And a lot of people like me moved back and tried to change things. And for a while, it looked like we could make something happen. We saw during these 20 years, maybe not the politicians, but people did get along. In Kabul, you had a youth movement 
where Hazara and Pashtun and Tajik, women and men, worked together in the government, in aid organizations, in schools. And it was an, an amazing thing to see for me because I had lived there during the Soviet invasion. I subsequently moved there and worked while the Taliban were there and then afterwards, after the fall of the Taliban. And I haven't been back for a very long time, since 2007, but I've been in touch and I've been in Turkey covering the migration of Afghans there. So for me, the last 20 years was a success, not a failure. A failure in the battlefield, yes, but the generation that came from this two decades has been amazing. I mean, amazing. And they are now the ones who are going to suffer and lose. What do you think the United States should be doing to help? What, what's our moral responsibility? Right now, we do have a moral responsibility, just like we did after Vietnam, that we need to bring these refugees here and we need to make sure that they are given opportunities and safety. That's the first thing. The second thing is to put pressure on the Taliban not to go back to what they were. There is some hope now, seeing that the Taliban are kind of like, all right, we're going to let people do what they do on an average day. You know, the Tolo TV had a woman on, the same anchor as usual, a woman. And she was interviewing a Taliban analyst or whatever. And I was in shock. And that gives me hope. But I don't know if this is all for show. When the cameras are turned off and the international reporters are gone, what's going to happen next? You think ultimately their true colors will, will, will shine yeah, through? Yeah, I mean, they, they have an ideology. They believe in a very strict interpretation of whatever it is. It's not my Islam. It's theirs. One in which women are second-class citizens and Shias are not equal to Sunnis. And everybody is an infidel who doesn't do what they say. And that's not how I grew up. That's not what my family or millions of other families in Afghanistan believe in. How can we stop that? How can we keep them in check? And I think that's not just the U.S.'s moral responsibility, but internationally. I think we need to have an international coalition that cares about human rights. Well, let, me, let me ask you this, though. If uh, the Taliban has been winning on the battlefield and ultimately the United States has withdrawn, it would just seem to me that maybe they're not scared of the United States anymore. So what would be the vows that we could turn in order to, like, put pressure on them? Well, see, I, that's, that's what's curious to me. I, they could have come in and they could have done anything they wanted. They are not. They're putting women on TV. They are asking Afghans not to leave because they need their help to govern. They don't know how to govern. Even back then, they didn't. Their idea of governing was cutting off hands and executions in football stadiums. Mm -hmm. So they're not fighting anymore. And now they want to make allies. I do think they care about international recognition and allies now. I do think they need humanitarian aid money. So you think that's a shift? I think that's the shift, yeah. But let's see, by the time this interview airs, if the universities are close to women, if women working in parliament in the offices are going to be told to go home. Let's see what happens next. We're all waiting. Fariba Nawa, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thanks for having me. You are the first person who's been in the studio with me in a year and a half, so... <laughs> I feel privileged. The privilege is all mine, so thank you. <laughs> That interview was produced by Stan Alcorn. As we were wrapping the show, we checked back with Fariba about the family she was trying to help leave Afghanistan. Fariba told us that they had made a long and dangerous bus ride to Kabul, but so far, they hadn't been able to make it any further. When we come back, we hear from a Marine veteran on the cost of war for the people of the U.S. and Afghanistan. Now that the Taliban have taken power, what, what now? And I'll tell you, a lot of the veterans I'm talking to, they feel a little bit helpless. You know, because they really do care about the people of Afghanistan. That's next on Reveal.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letton. Since the U.S. first invaded Afghanistan, more than 800,000 Americans served in the war. Nearly 2,500 service members lost their lives. James Laporta is a former Marine infantry rifleman who first arrived in Afghanistan in 2009. While on patrol, he would sometimes take videos of what was happening. This is a pretty uh, typical day in Afghanistan. It's about 110 degrees outside. But as soon as you walk into the fields, you know, the fields are irrigated. And so they're incredibly humid. It's almost like someone turns up the temperature. So when you start to walk through those fields, it's almost like someone's taking your breath away. During two tours of duty, James held many jobs, including infantry squad leader and working in intelligence. Today, he's an investigative reporter for the Associated Press. James, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So how long had you been in the Marine Corps before you got sent to Afghanistan? Uh, It was about three years at that point. Uh, I had come in in the summer of 2006, basically 10 days after high school. I showed up to boot camp. Was being in the Marine Corps at that point like what you thought it would be when you were in high school dreaming about joining? No. <laughs> I, uh, I was in JROTC in high school, which is Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, when you wear uniforms and you march around and I was sort of naive. You know, when I joined in 2006, the focus was still on Iraq. They're still looking for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So Afghanistan was sort of an afterthought. When you first got deployed to Afghanistan, were, were you excited? Did, did you want to go? I volunteered, yeah. I was with the 2nd Marine Regiment and uh, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, the battalion that I became a part of. They didn't have enough personnel to go to Afghanistan. So they came over to 2nd Marine Regiment asking Marines, does anybody want to jump on a deployment? And uh, I had not been to Afghanistan, so I volunteered. And uh, about two, three weeks later, I was heading off to Afghanistan. What did Afghanistan look like when you arrived? Can you kind of paint a picture for us? So in my particular area, I was in southern Helmand province. Helmand at that time was, in 2009, was one of the most dangerous provinces in all of uh, the country, particularly where I was, which was a place called Minapashte, which is on the outskirts of of Garmshire. It was a lot of farming, a lot of poppy fields and and. Poppy gets turned into heroin. Tons of marijuana fields. I mean, we're talking three or four or five football field long and marijuana plants that are, you know, six, seven feet high. The running joke at the time was, you know, I hope we don't hit an IED because we're all going to be too high to fight. I was a um, infantry rifleman in an infantry squad. And so, um, so I carried a machine gun for uh, a Marine fire team. And the job of an infantryman is is very simple. It's find and kill the enemy. Uh, In July, I mean, we were getting into firefights two or three times a day. So at this point, I'm sort of used to getting shot at. Uh, We had headed out on a patrol south of what was called uh, Combat Outpost Sharp. It was named after... Lance Corporal Charles Seth Sharp of Darysville, Georgia. He was the first Marine in our company to die. He died on July 2nd, our first day in combat. And so we were patrolling south of there. And um, a machine gun opens up on us and sort of splits the squad into two. So me and my team, we were on the left side of a field. And then the other half of the team were on the right side of the field. And then we sort of move into trying to flank around the machine gun nest to take it out. And I moved to the back door of this courtyard. And and that's when I saw this individual who, to me, they look like a teenager. I I would have been really surprised if they were over the age of 18. They were shooting an AK-47 and I fired rounds into them and I watched them fall. We 
we were still getting shot at from this machine gun. Our platoon sergeant, he called in the Cobras, which are these helicopters with Hellfire missiles on them and machine guns. And they came in and started hammering the position with missiles and bullets. And then that was sort of the end of the day. It later bothered me uh, a lot. Uh, was this person really a Taliban member? Uh, was this someone who was forced to fight? You know, I wanted to put myself in their shoes. If someone was invading my country, would I pick up a weapon and shoot at someone like me? Yeah. What was your last day like? There was a point in right around the tail end of August going into October. I, I, I was over, I was over getting shot at. I, I was over it all. There was a, um, how do I describe this? I had started to do things that were not safe. For instance, I was at a vehicle checkpoint. I started to not put on my Kevlar. I started to not put on the rest of my gear. I would go out there with just a, like a nine mil and search them. I started to act real stupid. And, and that stemmed from, by the tail end of August into October, I had been in so many different firefights and been shot at so many different times. Bullets were literally coming in with, you know, mere inches of my head and I wasn't getting hit. I had walked through tons of IED fields at that time and I wasn't stepping on IEDs, I wasn't getting shot. And I was tired of surviving these moments. It was almost torturous to keep surviving time after time these moments. And I came to the point where I was like, if I'm gonna get shot, can we just get it over with? I didn't want to keep going through these moments time after time again, you know, of coming so close to death and then nothing happening. I, I was over it. Just hearing you describe it after like constantly facing death, at some point you, you just get tired. Yeah, I was tired of it. If it was going to happen, I wanted to get it over with. And so I remember my last day, I don't have a record of it in terms of like writing it down. What I do remember is getting onto the, the helicopter that picked us up from Combat Outpost Sharp. And it was almost surreal looking out the back of the helicopter and seeing the, the dust cloud pick up as, as the rotors whined and wondering if I would I ever be back here again wondering what was going to happen to the place after I leave. I went back to Afghanistan in 2013 and I was working in uh, the intelligence community and, you know, I looked up how was Sharp doing in 2013. And basically from 2009 to 2013, the area had reverted back to where it was when we first went in in 2009. And in fact, it, it had gotten even worse. We lost 14 Marines in 2009. That's not even counting the Afghan soldiers that we lost. So then the question becomes, what was it for? How have you changed after going to Afghanistan? There's the pre-2009 version of me and the post-2009 version of me. And um, if I'm speaking honestly, the, the pre-2009 version of me is a way more optimistic person. They seem to be happier. They don't have the weight of memory and the, and the burden of memory. Uh, the post-2009 of me is weighted down by moments that I can't forget. And there are reminders, constant reminders of those moments. You know, anytime there's a birthday or, you know, any sort of life milestone. After I came back from that deployment, I really felt that I was on borrowed time. I know it was just overwhelming survivor's guilt, but I guess that's how I've changed. I am weighted down by those experiences. Yeah. And I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what they all mean, if they mean anything at all. Tim O'Brien, the author who wrote The Things They Carry, 
But he's often written about how wars do not end with the signing of peace treaties. Wars don't end when troops come home and with a withdrawal. They, they continue on in the minds of the people that were there and the families who have experienced permanent shattering. So even though the U.S. is pulling out of Afghanistan and we signed a peace treaty under the Trump administration, the war continues in the, in the people that, that had to live through it. And it's going to continue for as long as that question is sort of out there. Was it worth it? And, and that question, you can spend a lifetime trying to figure out what the answer is. Are you in touch with other vets this week? I have. A lot of the messages have been from veterans who are trying to get people out of Afghanistan. I got tons of messages from veterans who are just looking to try to get their Afghan interpreters out of the country before it's too late. And I'll tell you, a lot of the veterans I'm talking to, they feel a little bit helpless. You know, because they really did care. A lot of the veterans really do care about the people of Afghanistan. There's just this lingering question of what now? Yeah. Now that the Taliban have taken power, what, what now? The only thing I would close on is me as a veteran, I, you know, I lost friends, you know, and I think about them constantly. But the burden that I carry is nothing compared to the burden that both American and Afghan families have to face who have lost loved ones in this war. The burden that they carry is, is a permanent one. <laughs> Afghan families, American families and British families and Canadian families, and I would keep those what we call gold star families in your thoughts because they're permanently affected by these wars. I'm one of the lucky ones that got to come back and have a family. So I, I think that's the only thing that my thoughts have been on them over the past couple of days, what they must be going through at this moment. James, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. I know bringing back the past is, is never easy, especially when the past isn't that far away, right? Like when you, when you have deep trauma like this, it's always right under the surface. So I know it's hard and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank, thank you for giving me the opportunity to. James LaPorta is a former Marine who served multiple tours of duty in Afghanistan. He's now an investigative reporter with the Associated Press. As the city of Kabul was falling into Taliban hands, reveals Najib Amini was watching it all happen live online and on TV while sitting next to his parents in their home in New York. His parents left Afghanistan in the late 70s, just before the Soviet invasion. They've seen governments rise and fall in Afghanistan, but this is the first time Najib's been old enough to really grasp what's happening. As an Afghan-American, he's been trying to make sense of some of the starker images that have come out of the country. And he's been thinking about what it all means for Afghanistan and its people. Here's Najib. I recognize the privilege I have of not needing to leave any country out of fear, of not worrying about what a group like the Taliban might do to me personally, or dreading an uncertain future caused by upheaval. Afghan people have lived with this sort of upheaval throughout history. Governments, ideologies, and leaders have come and gone. And that's meant the country has had a lot of different flags. The story of Afghanistan is woven into the fabric of those flags. I'm 32 years old, and in my lifetime, the country has had five very different versions. The flag I associate with is the one adopted in 2002. It has three vertical stripes, a black one, representing the dark days of the country's past, hopefully left behind. Red, for the blood spilled when Afghanistan won independence from the British in 1919. And green, for the future, one filled with promise and prosperity. And in the middle is an emblem of a mosque surrounded by pieces of wheat. It's a symbol of what Afghanistan has always strived and struggled to be. United, 
This is a flag that's supposed to be for everyone. The camera has been trailing those fighters as they make their way through. So when members of the Taliban went inside the Ark, the presidential palace, the Afghan White House, and slowly took down this flag... I, I just got to stop there. What we're showing you, uh, our viewers, now uh, was uh, images of the Afghan flag being taken down. And that is Taliban fighters have taken down the flag of Afghanistan. This, for me, was when it all really started to sink in. This is a moment. This is history. This is not a good feeling. And I know I wasn't alone. I felt sad, and I am feeling sad inside my heart when I see that my flag is coming down and another flag is going up. It's a tragedy, and it's sad news for every Afghan. This is Abdul Bari Jahani. He's one of Afghanistan's most treasured poets. He's written scores of poems, books, and anthologies. And I interviewed him a few years ago for an indie podcast about the role of culture for those of us in the Afghan diaspora. What role does culture have in possibly solving, correcting, helping aid the situation in Afghanistan? If people are enlightened, they won't leave their country destroyed by foreigners and terrorists and uh, suicide bombers. And enlightening the people are the job of the, the writers and our artists. When I saw the Taliban roll up that flag, I couldn't help but think of Abdul Bari Jahani because he's responsible for another symbol of Afghanistan. He is the author of the national anthem. This land is Afghanistan. It's the pride of every Afghan, the land of peace, the land of sword. He'll tell you it's not his proudest work, and that there were some creative differences about what to omit and what to include between him and the Karzai administration that asked him to write it back in the early 2000s. I didn't like it. No one likes an editor, right? Yeah. You can't see it, but over the Zoom, he's cracking a smile. While he might not view it as his greatest work, for me, it's a relevant piece of poetry, especially right now. What was the message you were trying to communicate? It was just the, the unity of the, all the people of Afghanistan. That we are trying for justice and we are trying to go forward. But Abdul Bari knows what's likely to happen to his anthem. I think Afghanistan is Afghanistan might be the only country in the world that has so many flags and so many anthems and so many names and so many currencies. I expect another currency, another constitution, another flag, another anthem. I won't feel sorry for it because I I expect it. Hundred percent, and uh, and I think uh, I'm lucky that that my my anthem uh, survived these fifteen years. Uh, I didn't expect it it would survive fifteen years this long. Have you gotten any calls from the Taliban about writing a new anthem? No, I'm hundred percent sure that they won't call me. If there's one line from the anthem that you'd like for it to stay, what would that one line be? The first line. This is Afghanistan, and this is the country of all of the, of the people, and this is the pride of all the people. I am an Afghan. I am proud of my country, and I, I, I want that country for all the people who are living in, in that country. And I want them to be proud of their country. If, if not, they won't defend it. The anthem and the flag, they're symbols. Symbols that try to transcend politics, corrupt leaders, and old warlords. These symbols help point to a future for Afghans that is inclusive. A future where Afghans are united. I think this is why watching the flag come down was so powerful. And why it was even more powerful to see Afghan protesters across the country pick it up again in defiance of the Taliban. It shows that these symbols for many Afghans are still worth defending.
That story from Reveals Najib Amini. He was our lead producer for this week's show. Stan Alcorn, Aikshree Skandaraja, and Anjali Comet also produced the show, with help from Elizabeth Shogren and Nadia Hamdan. Nadia just started with us this week. Nadia, welcome to the team. Brett Myers, Taki Telenitis, and our executive producer, Kevin Sullivan, edited the show. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Amy Mustafa. Original score and sound design by the dynamic duo Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando Mamanyo Aruda. That help this week from Stephen Rescon, Claire Mullen, and Brett Simpson. Our digital producer is Sarah Merck. Our interim CEO is Annie Shable. Sumi Agarwal is our interim editor-in-chief. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Hellman Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the In As Much Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Edson, and remember, there is always more to the story. (laughs) 